desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Good morning, I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and today on Buffalo What's Next, we're talking community, trauma, racism, and healing with former mayoral candidate and community leader, LaCandice Durham. LaCandice, thank you for joining us today. Thank um, you for having me. When I ask you, what does Buffalo need, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Resources, home ownership, financial literacy. Um, unfortunately, we really can't get to the home ownership without the financial literacy. I think that's the biggest piece on getting out of poverty, um, making sure that the resources, the education is available. So once residents get into the home ownership or even owning their own business, they can stay there. You know, they, have to, they don't have to worry about going into foreclosure, um, generational wealth. How do we how do we get to that point? Where what are some of the what are some like starting points you wanna you wanna see to get that financial literacy so there are more homeowners in the city? Well, a start in the schools. Uh, education is most definitely important. Let's start getting our um, you know our, even our younger grades, not even just our high our high schoolers. Um, showing them the, the value of money and, you know, what you could do with money, you know, besides blowing it, investing in it. So, you know, it's starting with our youth and our youth will go home and take this information to their parents. Um, many parents, you know, in the city, a lot of them have only have high school diplomas or GEDs. Many don't, doesn't even have GEDs. So... We most definitely have to start with our youth. Let's start raising them up now. Mm-hmm. And that that financial literacy, you don't need a degree for that. You don't need a you don't need higher education. You just need you just need to have the resources. You can start at any age, and you can and and that will, you know, that's something that's gonna you're gonna keep with you your entire life. Your entire life. Um. With your community work, you are, again, like I said, a, a block club leader. Um, you sit on the board of Healing Hub New York. Do I have yes. that right? Can you tell us a little bit about Healing Hub? The Healing Hub, we meet people where they're at. Um, we know that there is a lot of people who have unaddressed trauma. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know who to go to. Um, they're afraid of being judged. And that's where we step in. The Helen Hub is a judge-free place. Um, the, we, we just, we look at you as, you're, you're one of us. 
Mm-hmm. So we just want to make sure we provide those resources, counseling, um, financial literacy, um, all that good stuff to residents who are in need. Yeah, and it feels like from from the people I've talked to, uh, I mean, I've, I talked to a survivor of the 514 shooting last week. There is still a whole lot of trauma going on, but there's also still uh, a lot of a lot of anger as well. Um, does that does that anger persist? Do you see that? How does that when you're when you're trying to heal, helping to heal people? Is it is it a different pathway you take to healing someone uh, from the trauma of the shooting, um, as opposed to someone who is just very angry with what happened? Is there two different ways to go about that? There are two different ways. Like currently, right now, the Helen Hub we're working with a young lady. Um, her daughter was, you know, they were inside the taps shooting when it happened and right now um she's feel like she's forgotten about so that's where we come in we're stepping in you know we're providing resources right now she's homeless we um we provided a hotel room for the young lady so the aftermath i mean there's still a lot of people that's truly affected we helping the ones that's angry as well who just don't understand why this happened you know many people die just because of the color of their skin there was no reason right and and to follow up with you on that you've got five kids right yes how old's the oldest and how old is the youngest my oldest is 18 my youngest is four how do you talk to them about 514 and about and about racism in the beginning it was so hard but now that we we had to like literally live through it you know my kids have to live through it you know they're at an age where a lot of my children are on social media you know social they're seeing things that they shouldn't see um, especially from May 14th so it was it was re- really hard to get those um, the visions out of their head, so we try to just provide counseling to the kids, you know, talk with them more, you know, you know, explain to them that every white person isn't bad. You can't walk around with hate in your heart. You still have to love people, you know, regardless. Um, even now, the way that my family and I are healing. We're, we're giving back to the community over in that area. And, you know, just trying to understand the needs of the community and just trying to provide those needs to them. It sounds like uh, you've had more than a few long nights at the kitchen table talking with your talking with your kids about what's going on. Yeah, we, we're, you know, we're in this together. Um, everything that I do, I like to include my family especially my my community work, because you just never know. It could be you one day. So, and I try to, you know, and I try to explain that to them all the time. You know, you're blessed, and that's our job, you know, to give back to others who are in need. Speaking of which, uh, along with the Healing Hub, you've got a, uh, I guess it's affiliated with the Healing Hub, Healing Soul Saturday. 
can you talk a little bit healing soul saturday excuse me um talk a, a little bit about that uh i believe it's a food giveaway why is that so important i love healing soul saturday my first day doing it was may 14th um when there's giveaways downtown and there's a giveaway on Maine and Utica. And they said, look, Candace, you know, you live in Riverside. You know, what do you think about doing one? And I was like, yes, because there's no grocery stores over there. A lot of residents in that area are, you know, low income, refugees. They are in need. So when I was thinking of the name, we we're thinking of different names. Like, what can I call it? And I'm like, Helen So Saturday. So our first day was May 14th, and it was a beautiful day. It was a sunny day. We met so many people. We served so many people. It was just, it was just an amazing day. Soon when I get home, I get the call that the Tops Massacre happened. And the first thing I did was I called all my family to make sure they were okay. And then I ran to Tops when Jefferson. I literally went from healing souls in Riverside, literally, to going out over, going over in Jefferson and trying to just heal the souls of so many families. So healing souls now is very personal to me, and May 14th is a day that I will never forget. Yeah, that's incredible. That that Did that take a toll on you that day? Oh, did it take a toll on me? I was out there all night long with families. Um, one family I remember being with was the Macy family, the sister of Kat Macy. And when I got there to on Jefferson at that time, there were still bodies in the parking lot. So, wow. so when I got that call, I instantly, you know, I went to be a service, you know, to the community. And, you know, seeing her just irate and crossing the police line because she was just, she wanted to see if her sister was okay. Yeah. So a lot of those scenes, um, you know, they still, they, they were playing my head and um, it's just, it's, it's a day that I will never forget, but a day that I will always like honor, you know, it's, it's just as important as 9-11 to me, mm -hmm. you know, in, in our city, across the country, you know, our victims, the Jefferson 10, they deserve the same respect. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next here on WBFO News. I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and sitting in with me today is former mayoral candidate and community activist, LaCandice Durham. Now, you've, you've done a lot of, you've been doing all this outreach to help others. How how have you been able to, you know, kind of heal yourself? Is that with, is that like a internal thing? Is that with family and friends? How is that working for you? Good question. Really good question. I don't even know how to answer it. Um, most definitely an internal thing. You know, I've been saying for a while, you know, I was going to speak with someone. Um, but sometimes it's hard to find someone who understands. And that's and I know I'm not alone. Not at all. Uh, you know, and that's the main thing of trying to find someone who understand and that I could relate to. 
Um, but one way I have been healing, though, is just being there for other people. Is It makes me smile to see other people smile and just knowing that, um, you know, I was able to help. But I know. I know I need some. Mm-hmm. I can admit I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, circling back to the point you made about there not being, uh, you know, grocery stores in your neighborhood of Riverside, is there is there a quick fix to tackling the problem of food deserts across the city? Um, and is there is there a long term fix? Do you think? I won't say there is a quick fix. But I would love to see maybe a start as maybe bringing in some more gardens, um, community gardens, you know, let's start growing our own food, you know. That's a long term. That's going to be there forever. Mm -hmm. So we most definitely have to think about the forever. I would love to see more grocery stores even consider, you know, even coming to Riverside. We had to save a lot. They closed down. Right now, all we have is like Dollar General, Family Dollar. Yeah, and those aren't grocery those stores. Those are not grocery stores at all. They serve they serve a public good, don't get me wrong, but they're they're not grocery stores. They're not Wegmans, they're not tops. They're you know. Right. Most definitely not no Wegmans or Tops. Um so you would think long term community gardens, getting getting fresh foods that way. Healthy healthy is the key. If we want to live a long life, you know, we have to eat healthy. A lot of the foods now, we don't even know half of the time what we're even eating. Um, They're injected with so much, so many different hormones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a way to bring togetherness in the community as well. Knowing, you know, you get to know your neighbors and... Even in Riverside, um, once again, we have a lot of refugees in that area and in their countries. You know, that's what many of them did. They they plant, they you know, they they grow their own food. Mm-hmm. So they could teach us a thing or two. Absolutely, you know? absolutely. Can you talk about your work as a block club leader? I'd love to know more yes. about that, please. I love being a block club leader. Before we bought our house in Riverside, we lived on the east side of Buffalo. We lived on Purgeon, right around the corner from the tops on Jefferson, between Dodge and Northampton. So, mm-hmm. you know, that tops, that whole, you know, that was our area for yeah. years. But when we were renting, well, our landlord went up on our rent. And we were like, no, 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 no. We cannot continue paying this if he's not doing repairs. So home ownership was, like, you know, we need to do this. We need to buy us a house. You know, we could buy us a house, pay a mortgage the same amount as rent. So in the process of buying a house, I said to the guy, I said, Lord, you help us buy a house. I promise I'll do anything. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. So... Me and the buying house in Riverside, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, remember you said you do anything? And that's when I started the block club. I felt that it, it, it was a need, and I felt the Lord speaking to me, telling me that I needed to even do more than just the block club. He wanted me to just take care of the 
the entire area. So it started as a black club just helping my my street <laughs> turned out to helping the whole entire district over there. So that was just a promise and a commitment that I made to God was, you know, um, you help me buy your house. I do whatever you need, and our black club is going strong. Maybe had maybe about three national nights out since we lived over there. Community um, during the COVID, we did PPE giveaways, um, fresh produce giveaways, um, a little pop-up shops in the neighborhoods. Just trying to bring different resources over in that area. Mm-hmm. And drug treatment is another issue you're tackling in your Riverside community. Opioids. Um, is another thing in in my neighborhood. That's a problem. That is a problem in the 14207 area code. So overdose prevention is truly important to me. Um, I work with Buffalo Mobile Ops. They're, a, they're like an Uber style, but they do like Narcan prevention on wheels. So I've been working with them very closely educating our community, lace, uh, lace marijuana right now. These are the things that the residents are not thinking of. You know, they're not, you know, you think they're just smoking a little weed mm-hmm. and your marijuana is lace. So we're starting to see like an uptick of overdosing that as well. Lace, uh, coke, uh, the cocaine is laced as well. You know, many think it's just a recreational drug. And you just... But you don't know what you're really putting in your body. Most definitely. So education is the key. If you're going to do any, you know, any of those type of drugs, make sure you have Narcan and those type of things with you. Was there pushback when, it, you know, coming with the, hey, keep Narcan on you, you don't, you know... Be safe. Was there a pushback for the Narcan? Because I heard when when cops started carrying Narcan, you know, when this was like a national issue, like, well, just let 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 those quote unquote junkies overdose, you know, whatever. Um, was there any pushback like that when when you um, started pro, uh, doing these overdose prevention things? No, but I've seen it going, like you said, across the country. You know, those are people, loved ones. And a lot of those residents who are addicts, it was it was the small things, maybe like a breakup that led to someone even trying drugs mm-hmm. and, and getting hooked on it or just hanging out with the wrong crowd. So it's hard to, it's hard, you, you can't even judge because you don't even know what someone, you know, went through. Yeah. But to get them out of that is very important to me. Um, last week I seen a mother and daughter addict together, you know, using together. So one of my goals is to break those curses, continue educating the community. I see in the 14215, the University District, Rashid Wyatt, they're, they're, campaign, they're campaigning against methadone clinics in their neighborhood there's about five and and i understand that we need to bring those resources over to areas that are a lot of people are against methadone clinics but when you get out in a community you see how real it is Mm -hmm. 
and I'm seeing how real it is. We got, we have to be able to provide those resources. Homelessness is big in Riverside. Residents are sleeping in Riverside Park, and and they're sleeping in Riverside Park because many of them they're on they're on drugs. They have no they have nowhere to go. So this is what I mean. We have to meet them where they at. We gotta go into Riverside Park and saying, you know, hey, we're here. We're we're here to help you. You know, what is it that you need? Provide those resources. Well, Candace, thanks again. Thank you. This is Thomas O'Neill White. Stay with us for more Buffalo What's Next. As politics thaw regarding the island of Cuba, what will become of this wildlife sanctuary? Watch Nature, Cuba's Wild Revolution, tonight at 8 on WNED PBS. Support for WBFO comes from our members and from M&T Bank. M&T opened its doors in 1856 with the aim of helping Buffalo grow and supporting those hardworking people dedicated to doing the same. The values they were founded on, responsibility, integrity, and commitment to our communities are still alive and well as we witness the remarkable rebirth of our hometown. More at mtb.com hometown. M&T Bank, understanding what's important for 160 years. Member FDIC. You can listen to WBFO anywhere in the world with your mobile device by downloading our apps at iTunes or the Google Play Store. Support for this audio service is provided by Freed Maxic, online at freedmaxic.com. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. In my news feed yesterday, an article popped up. It was from New York City. But the headline read, Mayor Adams, the mayor of New York City, signs bill aimed at lowering maternal mortality rate among black women. And so I was thinking, if something that was noticed at the largest city in the nation, chances are it's a universal problem. Chances are it's something worth talking about on this program. And so this morning, Luann Brown is with us. She's president and CEO of the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network. And if that's not something to make it interesting enough, Antoine Johnson is here. He's the program manager of their Buffalo Fatherhood Initiative. In fact, he's a new father himself. So with all that's going on in your house, I'm awfully glad you took the time to come on down. Luann, also, uh, thanks for being here. No problem. Let me start with the, uh, the premise, Luann. Mm -hmm. Maternal mortality rates are higher among black women in greater Buffalo? Nationally. Okay. Four to five times higher really? than white women, yes. And it's a problem we also have here. Yes. To what extent? Um, you know, our numbers of our deliveries, obviously we don't can't compete with like a New York City, but um, I think ours in this area in New York State, our mortality rate went from 3.3 to 6.4%. Mm. So... Infant the, the numbers Maternal. I have, uh, yeah. infant mortality per thousand live births mm -hmm. in Erie County, 173 right. for whites, 208 for blacks. That's a massive difference. Massive difference, right. And that has been the pattern for several years. 
why is it the same old thing we've and we've talked about it before on this program mm -hmm. the whole social determinants of health sure is I, it access to health care is that part of it too it's all that i think it's it's access to health care i mean i think that people have made attempts and i think there's been improvements in that you know there's clinics now that are located in the high-risk areas social determinants of health are huge yeah. um from food access housing access educational level of a lot of um, african-american women um, they actually have done a lot of research on a thing called weathering which they've basically shown that african-american women regardless of their education sometimes still have bad outcomes and they think it's because this weathering which is they describe it as a um, it's like the constant racism they face as a black woman and it just I mean they will find women that have moved here from Africa who have better outcomes because they haven't lived in the environment the racist environment generational stress yep, yep. I, I would just I was just about to go there okay. in, in terms of talking about the historical trauma and uh, you know you think about things like slavery and how yeah. African-American families and particularly women would treat it I think all that stuff plays a part into some of the stuff that we see today. I've even heard it called post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. The idea that um, generational stress has an impact on the body, an impact on lifestyle. Yep. Uh, in some cases, there's even been some research out there that shows it has an impact on your DNA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That to me is nuts. I don't mm -hmm. mean it. Uh, that, uh, I'm not denying it, but I'm just kind of astounded by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Serena Williams is a perfect example. Now, he's a woman who had every advantage, you know, was pregnant, certainly was educated, had resources, and um, ended up with a pulmonary embolus, which she recognized in herself, and but was not really paid attention to. Mm. She was smart enough to advocate for herself. And to what degree is that part of what you do do you teach people to advocate for themselves or right or do you kind of just and i don't mean this in a bad way right. jump on in and advocate for them um the two programs we have healthy families new york which is and our programs are all you know both home based we do everything in the client homes we're both basically on the east and west side of buffalo healthy families does go a little further out we do south buffalo Cheetawaga, lackawanna a little bit of hamburg a little bit of tonawanda um they are more likely they want to because they're with the family for five years until the child turns five so they want to, to teach the moms how to understand the system and how to navigate the system my community health worker program is looking for more of the vulnerable women like they find the, the women on outreach and bus stations that are homeless we do a lot more hand holding there but both the programs model advocacy a lot of times we go with them to appointments for their with their doctors so they'll see us you know and and sometimes we're translating because we have a, a large hispanic and 37 percent of my staff speak spanish so they will see us advocating and we try to teach them that but we also have through the um community health worker pitch grant we've just started a consumer advisory board which are graduates of our programs who wanted to give back but one of the the goals of that program is to teach them advocacy and let them influence their neighborhoods 
and their communities. How do you find your subjects? Because I imagine the hospitals just can't say, hey, uh, Luann, here's an at-risk person. That, that would violate HIPAA, obviously. Yeah, they. Uh, we do get referrals from the hospitals. We actually have a pilot going right now with O'Shea Children's where we're pretty much based at the prenatal clinics. Wow, okay. I you didn't know, think that would be allowed. No, it basically, no, if, if we're like in the waiting room, we're not in the rooms, but we get to, ah. we talk to clients, you know, and this program is voluntary. It's free. They don't have to become a, you know, a, a participant, but um, we get them through the hospitals. We get them through agencies, community health worker, actually like pre COVID. Now we're picking it up again. 70% of their referrals came through street outreach. So they go into neighborhoods, you know, not in the dead of winter, but knocking on doors, handing cards out. So we get them from various sources, a lot of word of mouth. Some of our clients, you know, they refer their sister, their cousin, their neighbor. And in that regard, you're probably wandering neighborhoods, not necessarily giving out health information alone. No, we give out a lot of other information. Housing is part of it? Housing is a big part. I'll start my rant now. I knew it was a rant. That's why I mentioned it. Go ahead. Feel free to rant. So... Housing is, again, a social determinant of health. It is not our primary mission at Buffalo Prenatal, but you can't talk to people about health education and health goals if they don't know where they're sleeping that night Mm -hmm. or they're sleeping in an unsafe place. So we have become very involved with housing. I think our homeless numbers tripled during COVID. Um, So we have become involved to the point that we're, you know, we're helping them fill out the paperwork for Belmont Housing. We're going to look at apartments. Um, my clients, and I can't even describe some of them. I could probably send you lovely pictures of some of the apartments my clients are in, but you wouldn't put your, your dog in these some of these homes. You um, recently took some representatives of HUD and the Attorney General. Yes, we did a, a little tour with them, and there was I'll tell you, there was complete silence when they walked through those homes because... The one mom couldn't even have her kids at the house because it wasn't a safe environment. So my rant is that um, I'm very happy they have housing for vets and seniors, but we need to have housing for families. I mean, it's, it's a basic human need that you have a safe place. And our clients, when we find them, they don't want to complain because they don't want to get evicted. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's better to have a, a roof over your head than no roof over your head. But... You know, we've worked really closely with the Community Foundation um, on their lead task force because that's another huge issue in Buffalo. You know, the lead housing and our clients tend to be in these this house, these housing. Um, we work very closely with, and that's been about a year with the city inspectors because they have to get in the homes in order to cite the landlords, but our clients are not going to open the doors to those cities because they don't know them. But if our, my community health workers with them, they will. What kind of things do they see? You said earlier there was a home that was definitely unsafe for children. What makes it unsafe? There wasn't enough egress to get out of the house. The furnace was right in the middle of the of the living room. Um, a lot of times they take attics and just make them apartments. Um, mold, lead, mm. rodents. Mm. Um, it's just it's it's just. It's just unsafe. It's unsafe for anybody, but especially a pregnant mom or a mom who's parenting young children. And, and yeah, I, uh, go ahead. If please. I could just jump in and add, I did housing 
work around affordable housing opportunities for about a year and a half with the local not-for-profit. And one of the things that I, I saw in addition to some of the things that Luann pointed out was the landlords who own these properties. And a lot of times when I would walk with my clients and through the apartments to, you know, look at them as options, the landlords really didn't care a whole lot about mm-hmm. the way in which the apartment was. and once clients got in, they didn't do a lot to try to address issues that were wrong with the apartments. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we found ourselves having to advocate for that because there are a lot of biases for low income and particularly families of color, whereas sometimes their needs are not met immediately, right? Because they're seen as less than. So mm-hmm. I think that's another issue. Tell me more about that particular part of the issue. Um, racial discrimination. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, when we think about the way in which apartments are kept and, you know, just the communities and all these other things. I mean, I think that plays a big role in terms of why some of the things that Luann mentioned are not immediately addressed. I mean, some of the apartments that that I saw, I didn't, I wouldn't live in them, let alone advocate for a client to live in them, you know, and so I, I think the the discrimination and all those other things, I mean, play a role in the housing market and so forth. And then this would be the perfect time to talk more about your, your fatherhood program, because I can imagine that personal difficulties, be it housing or health or a huge list, keep anyone from making fatherhood the kind of priority it needs to be in their lives to sure. be successful. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I guess, you know, in a segue from the last topic, I was thinking about the experience that my wife and I had when we had our second child, our son. Which was in the past couple of days, right? <laughs> yeah, the past, uh, a couple of weeks okay. ago. And so when my wife, she went into preterm labor and it was it was scary for her and me at the time. And when we were in, you know, the I don't, I don't know what the room is called, but as they were prepping her. Yeah. She she kind of felt rushed and like some of the nurses and our doctors are talking over her head. But there was one African-American nurse in there that was really kind of paying attention to her. Like, did, did you understand what they just asked yeah. you and those kind of things? And she really appreciated that her and I talked a little bit about it. But I, I was grateful that, that yeah. she did ask my wife questions to clarify things and help her to understand because it was an overwhelming situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a lot more for her than me, but... Yeah, I mean, so you you think about like doulas and you know some of the things you talked about around maternal um, uh, deaths and so forth. I mean, that I think just the advocacy part, having nurses that care and can explain things to the patients, is super important. Mm-hmm. What of the difficulties that fathers specifically face, though? Is is that something beyond some of the health stuff that Luann has already talked about? Somewhat. I mean, some of it is very similar. So one of the things that I learned over the last year or so is that one out of every 10 men will experience post uh, partum depression. depression. Seriously, I'd never heard that. Which uh-huh. is not something Yeah, that, you think of it as a, a woman thing. You uh-huh. think of it as a woman thing, not, not something that a lot of men will probably even admit if they do have it. Uh-huh. And so... That was that was really something for me to learn. But I think a lot of the things that, you know, we talk about uh, men in, in this space of infant and maternal health, they're, they're kind of like the invisible parent or person when we when we have these discussions. One of the things that I also learned was that one out of every four children 
will grow up in a home without their biological father in the United States, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, mothers are more, twice as more likely to experience um, infant mortality, right? The, their rates go up, the dropout rates go up, uh, women are seven times, or teenage women are seven times more likely to have uh, teenage pregnancies, and, and the list goes on. And so I think just about everything that we're talking about intersects with men and fatherhood. Mm -hmm. Is your goal then to help existing fathers stay with the family? Absolutely, that's a part of it. Yeah, okay. so, so well, Just a part, though. Tell me more. Yeah, so our very first cohort, I'll never forget, we had... The youngest person in the group was about 18. They weren't even a father yet. They were just okay. playing like a father figure role to nephews. And the oldest was in like mid-60s. And so he was kind of starting all over again. Wow. And so we just looked at this intergenerational group and the different dynamics in terms of life stages and, and priorities and all sorts of things. And it, it was really interesting. And I mean, the, the needs vary too. So, I mean, the, this topic around fatherhood and, you know, kind of understanding what's important is, is really vague. What do you do? Take me through that kind of talk. Um, do you just pull fathers in individually? Just like Luann has uh, people working individually on some of the health issues, yeah. do you pull people in individually and, and talk to them about whatever's going on in their life? Sometimes we, we do provide individual uh, services and we try to meet dads where they are on an individual level, but a lot of the work that we do is group based. Okay. And so we, we do uh, these cohort models seasonally, so fall, winter, and spring, and we take dads through a course known as Nurturing Fathers. And so it's traditionally a 13 week group where we talk about everything from what our relationships were like with our fathers, which is huge uh, because a lot of us didn't have fathers in our lives, which is why we see some of the rates we see when, when men are not involved in the lives of their children, because for a lot of men or fathers, it's hard to be what you never saw, yeah. right? And so we talk to them you about that. You can't model behavior that you don't know. Exactly. And so one of the things with the Nurturing Fathers curriculum, which is evidence-based, is that it it, te it it teaches men how to unlearn some of those negative behaviors, right? So if they grew up in abusive homes or whatever, right? They teach, it walks them through how to kind of unlearn some of that stuff, even though a lot of it is very traumatic. Uh, but then also how to t learn new parenting practices that will aid them in their experiences as fathers. And so we talk about things related to co-parenting. Uh, what's the difference of fathering a, a boy versus a girl uh, and everything in between? I'm trying to thread the needle here between stereotyping and uh, and putting the problem through a racial equity lens. Mm -hmm. What's the makeup of your group? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so, so because more often than not, when people think about fatherhood programs, they think yeah. about programming for black men who are not involved in the lives of their children, and that is not true. So one of the other things that I found interesting when I first started at Buffalo Prenatal was that the CDC did a study between 2006 and 2010. One of the things that they found out was that black men are actually more involved than some of the other races of ethnicities when it comes to direct care. So we're talking about things like bathing and feeding, taking their kids to school and doing, you know, just the day-to-day -day kind Bing. of things. Yeah. You, you, I would have never guessed that uh, because of the narrative that is put yeah. out there. Yeah. Right. So the makeup of her our groups to answer your question it, it varies so 
it's it's almost half and half in terms of African American and white fathers. And we have Asian and Hispanic and different fathers from time to time. But I would say both white and black fathers in the community are predominant. I want to go back to that stat you had earlier, though. The one in four mm-hmm. is that specific to African American men? No. Uh, oh, that's in general. Men okay. in general, yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the thing you have to target and deal with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk more about that when we return. Antoine Johnson is here. He's the director of the Fatherhood Program at the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Network. Luann Brown is their CEO. We'll talk more with both of them when we come back. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. When you meet with your trusted advisors to review your estate plan, please consider asking them to name Buffalo Toronto Public Media as a beneficiary in your will, trust, insurance policy, or a retirement account. Your gift will ensure the voice of public radio continues for generations to come. For more information, visit wned.org slash legacy or contact Colleen Miller at cmiller at wned.org. Thank you. As politics thaw regarding the island of Cuba, what will become of this wildlife sanctuary? Watch Nature, Cuba's Wild Revolution, tonight at 8 on WNED-PBS. Watch the WNED-PBS original production, The Adirondacks. We've come closer here to a, a working balance between the natural world and the human world than just about any place on Earth. The Adirondacks, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. We are with Antoine Johnson today. He's the director of the Fatherhood Initiative at the Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal Network. And their CEO and president, Luann Brown, is also here. We're talking a little bit, as we have on past programs, about social determinants of health, but specifically what that means for maternal mortality in Western New York, specifically what that means for fatherhood involvement, the involvement of, of dads. Uh, in Western New York. They address both of those. Before the break, Antoine, you were talking a little bit about the fact that uh, there is definitely a racial misconception there. Yes, absolutely. How or why, when you have an uninvolved father, are they uninvolved? That's a load of questions. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean it to be. I'm just naturally curious. No, no, no. It's a good question. So it can, it can be a variety for a variety of reasons. I think I mentioned earlier about the idea of it's how it's hard to be what you never saw, right? So if your yeah, father yeah. was absentee, then some of the ideas of why I can be absentee and the mom can take care of all the responsibility. I was raised by a single parent and so she can do it by herself too. I think the other thing is that for men who don't like the confidence to be able to uh, effectively yeah, care for their that. child, right. maybe they don't feel like they make enough money, which can be huge for men because far too often we associate our value with how much income we earn. Yeah. Yeah. And things of that nature. I think the list goes on, but those are the two biggest things that come to my mind. And that's where some of the socioeconomic factors obviously come in. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. That's the overlap I'm thinking with what Luann is talking about in general, social determinants. Mm-hmm. 
So, broadly speaking, and you addressed this earlier, you look at housing, you look at homelessness, um, access to care, is that part of it? Yeah, I mean, we, that's like one of the first things we look at in both my pro- both the programs to make sure healthy families, those clients are usually already connected to prenatal care, but a lot of times our community health worker program, they're not. So the first thing we do is we make sure they have health insurance and a health provider. And we're so insistent on it because we know if they're not going for their prenatal care, and there's a lot of things that can get in transportation, but, you know, we make the appointment. A lot of times we take them to the appointment or we arrange transportation. We're, kind, we're, we're with them all the time so we can have a really good handle on what they're doing. And we use that time to educate. But um, it's not like we can't get into places, but you have to encourage them and educate them about the importance of prenatal care. And that's where doulas come in. That's a mm-hmm. phrase that I don't know if everyone's familiar with. Right. So doulas are, um, they're non-clinical. They're not nurses. They're so not this doctors. Is not a midwife. This is not a midwife. A doula is really, I would describe a doula as a support person. So they've been around forever. I actually had a program when I was at, worked at Children's that we started a doula project. So the role of the doula is prenatally they will see the mom you know do education explain to them about what's going to happen during delivery the doula role is so important because a lot of times including our clients they don't have family support sometimes they may be estranged from their family um so they'll see them prenatally then they're their labor support so they're with them during the labor I mean, they're, if they're there, they're there the entire time. I mean, you know, the nurses are taking care of other clients. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to do their job. The doctors are busy as well, but a doula is a, a, a kind of a, a consistent support person. Is it, is it safe to call them a pregnancy-specific social worker? Um, they can, they can function. I mean, some of the things they might do is to help them connect your resources. They certainly could do that. Um... I, but I think their role is really education, support. Mm. Then they will see them postpartum as well. Okay. So after they have the baby, they're they're in there helping them with the baby. So it's been you know shown that the presence of a doula really can impact outcomes for the mom. Um, it's just that fact of having somebody there who's got your back and is ah, constantly, okay. you know, knows you, knows what your concerns are. And New York City, again, uh, a little bit of the impetus for this program, New York City, again, uh, just yesterday passed some legislation right. targeting the idea of lowering maternal mortality rates among black women. One of the things in their legislation is more training, more access, more recruitment of doulas. Is mm-hmm. that an issue we have here? Yeah, we do have a doula collaborative because New York State um, several years ago did a pilot where they actually were going to pay the doulas. So Erie County was identified as one of the sites and Kings County, which is in New York City. Kings mm. County opted not to participate and I, you know, understandably because the prices they were paying, I mean, you're living in New York City, you got to make a livable wage. So they did not do that. But in in uh, in Erie County, we do have a large doula contingent. We can, certainly can have more. I've had some of my staff, I just sent two people through du- through doula training, um, and they function some people, so they've been able to bill insurance companies for this service. Um, some doulas just charge a flat fee, you know, that's mm-hmm. whatever. But 
a lot of our clients can't afford it. So that's why this was a nice option for them. They did extend the pilot, and we're hoping it's going to be a permanent thing. It's It's been common across the United States. There are states that reimburse doulas. California just did it. They just said it. They just passed the law in California. They're going to Does pay New the York? doulas. Does New York? Just through this pilot. Okay. Yeah. And that pilot is specific to your program here in Erie County? To Erie County. So okay. anybody, and there there are community doulas, you know, there's several um, organizations. Um, Shannon Johns runs a, runs a doula program called Kami Nature, I believe. So there are, there's probably a good group, and we, we convene that group. AHAC actually um, has been the convener of that group. AHAC? Uh, Associated Health Education Project. Okay. It was originally with United Way, and now we've transitioned to them. So they convene the group. They provide support resources to them. You said something earlier in the program that I scribbled out immediately, and I'm only now getting the chance to circle back. Mm -hmm. During COVID, our homeless numbers tripled. Mm-hmm. When you say hours, do you mean county at large or the amount of homeless people you work with? I'm talking about the number we dealt with. Okay. Um, it just was, you know, and, you know, our staff worked remotely for a couple months, so they were doing virtual calls and FaceTime with their clients. Um, but we pretty much went back into the homes until we had the spike stopped, came back. But we've been pretty much in the homes because I know that we are only the only support for some of these clients. Um, so... We were finding, we found one woman who had been living in her car with her two-year-old for a year. Mm. I mean, they just, it it just seemed to exacerbate during that time. Um, So, and that's why we became so involved with it. Um, Just because, again, it's, it's such a priority for people that you need a safe place to be and when you're pregnant and when you're raising children. Devil's advocate. Weren't what? there all those programs during COVID that uh, kept people from being evicted? Why do you why do you think the numbers went up as much as they did within your population that you serve? I don't know if people were um, some of them maybe because they weren't working. I mean, even if they were getting unemployment, you know, the the rents also went up, which was a which is a restriction for our clients. That continues to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a couple of those things, I would guess. I'm guessing. Okay. Luann Brown is here. She's with the Prenatal Perinatal Network of Buffalo. Uh, Let's talk terms. Prenatal, I think everyone knows that. That's before birth. Mm -hmm. Is perinatal after? Perinatal is kind of the whole period during, you know, during the delivery and postpartum. All right. And Antoine Johnson is also here. He's the head of their fatherhood initiative. I think I would be doing a disservice to the premise of this program if I didn't try to put things through uh, the rubric of May 14th. Antoine, you spoke earlier about racial discrimination and the role it plays. How have things changed since the top shooting? For our program specifically? Yeah, or, or, or in terms of what you're seeing in the community. I mean, if, if there's a specific way to answer that from what you're seeing in your program, great. But more broadly, also, what are you seeing? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of coming together uh, where the community is concerned, a lot more programs stepping up in terms of addressing some of the issues related to May 14th. And there's a more connectedness, um, you know, I just, just mm-hmm. kind of feel, you know, mm-hmm. as, as tragic as that situation was, I think it brought a lot of people together 
as a result. Groups that weren't working together or just average people? Not necessarily, just groups. I mean, I mean, just average people, you okay. know, it's yeah. a community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I imagine it brings forth a discussion that, that I mean, right. this radio program is just one small example. Sure. More people are talking about race, aren't they? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because of it. Right. Okay. Yeah, I was, I mean, you know, when it happened that day, of course, my first thought was my staff, because my staff are from the communities they serve. Sure. They shop at their tops. Um, you know, we checked on all of them, you know, none of our clients, but all of my staff knew one or two of the victims. They all, because that's that community, their church community, whatever, they all knew somebody. So we really had to do, you know, um, some healing with the staff. Um, we actually have our EAP program through Child and Family Services, and we had just signed with them. So we came in and they came in and did like a debrief with the staff. Um, it was very difficult um, because it was just so horrendous. And mm. I think the whole race issue just came to the forefront and people finally realized, you know, that, you know, the perception that some people have about, you know, black people and, you know, what their rights are and what their impact is and, it was it was just it was a horrendous experience and you know my staff really needed to heal together they mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. antoine uh, i want to bring you into the discussion as as the the man of color in the room um how do we the community in general everybody talk more productively about race relations can you say more about more productively um in ways that will spark change and understanding Honestly, I don't have a straight answer, but I think one of the things that comes to my mind is just keeping those topics in the forefront. I think more far too often when things happen, it's like, you know, the, the, the flavor of the month. Yeah, and yeah. we talk about it for a while because it was sad and tragic, and then we don't talk about it anymore. And then, CNN was here, now they're not. Exactly. NBC was here, now they're not. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And and not in a way where, you know, people of color need to feel like they're, you know, um, less than or pity, but just in a way that says that we acknowledge the the struggles that you have. Is is it your role as a person of color to educate white people like me and Luann? I don't think it's my role to educate white people. I think that people of all walks of life should aspire to educate themselves on mm -hmm. things that are important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I've heard others on this program say, um, most notably uh, Jillian Hainsworth, the Poet Laureate, mm -hmm. who's really active out in the, the community, mm -hmm. um, that it really just comes down to more interaction. Yeah. If there can be more reasons for someone like me from a suburb mm -hmm. to eat a dinner on Jefferson Avenue, mm -hmm. that kind of interaction she mm -hmm. says could be, if you multiply it out, transformational. Yeah, I mean, Buffalo, the city of Buffalo in general was very segregated. Mm -hmm. It we There's these different pockets. I mean, yeah. we have w Williamsville and Amherst and Chittawaga and, you know, this, the city of Buffalo. It's very fragmented. And I think that relational piece of people who live in different parts of the city or neighborhoods coming to parts of Buffalo, like the east side of Buffalo, is is really important you know when we think about um keeping these topics in the forefront and making change um apart from when things happen that are that are tragic 
Yeah. And in fact, Jillian is actually going to be doing a, a special poem for our conference this year. Okay, so. that's great. Um, she's, she's a lot of fun. A good discussion any time we've had her on the program. We have about uh, three minutes left here, and I wanted to uh, just go between the two of you and find out uh, one of my standard closing questions, but I really think it's most appropriate, is what does Buffalo need? Luann, if, if, if I reached in my pocket and gave you a magic wand, you wave it around, what happens? What does Buffalo need? Well, you know what I'm going to say. Because housing is your rant. I, housing is my rant. I want an apartment building for my clients that I can put them in, you know, when I've got a domestic violence victim, that now we put them in a hotel for five days until we get them into a shelter. For a mom who's got a newborn baby that needs to be in a safe place um, with other women, which would be really supportive. It would be a really supportive environment. So that is my dream. That's interesting. To me, that sounds a little bit like um, assisted living for seniors, but you're talking about something designed specifically for moms. Absolutely. I think it's. I, I think they draw strength from each other. I think um, all these developers that are putting up these like, lovely apartment buildings, we need one for families. <laughs> does, does this exist anywhere? Is it is it in the mind of Luann Brown, or, or are there places that we can look at and maybe steal the idea from? There are places. There are places that do it. Gerard Place does a does a program for um, I think sub, the substance abusing women, um, but there's definitely a need. I mean, I could fill that apartment building in two weeks. How big would it have to be? Let's see. I'd like it like twenty to thirty apartments. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so there are developers out there. <laughs> Luann Brown, BPPN.org. No, uh, yeah, that's uh, right. At the end, we'll uh, put out ways to, to get in touch and get right. more information. Same question for you, Antoine. Here's the magic wand. What does it do? What does Buffalo need? That is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had some time to really give it some thought. But I, I think just caring for our neighbors, you know, I, as cliche as that sounds, I, I think, you know, if we can all just be a little bit more thoughtful, that it, it will go a long way. Yeah. Okay. Is there, I want to probe that just a little bit more, is there education that can be done to make that happen? Um, intention is good, and I might have good intention, and you might have good intention, mm -hmm. but if, if at our core there are issues here that we're not addressing, uh, how do you get over the hurdle, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I would say education. Okay. I think you know, I believe so much in the power of relationships. And like you talked about earlier, just coming down sure. uh, and having a cup of coffee on the east mm -hmm. side of Buffalo. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't take a whole You don't need to. You don't need mm -hmm. a seminar for that. Yeah. <laughs> All um, right. So I think just the relationships and coming together. All right. If people need to get in touch with either the Fatherhood Initiative or, or Buffalo Prenatal Perinatal mm -hmm. Network in general. Right. So the number, you can call 884-6711 is the number. All right. Let's say it again if people have to write it down. 884-6711. Okay. And then our website uh, is bpppn.org. You can get information. You can refer clients that way. You can donate to us. You can find out all about all the great things we're doing. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, no. That's, you <laughs> so, get a hold of Antoine that way, too. All right, all right. Both of you are through there. Uh, um, when Follow I first, us on social media. Okay. Facebook, Twitter, Twitter Instagram. at BPPN. LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Buffalo, okay. yeah. I'm finding more and more LinkedIn is a lot more valuable than I thought it was. LinkedIn, yeah. 
All right. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Especially, Antoine, thanks to you for coming in uh, <laughs> in the weeks after the birth of a child <laughs> when you're on leave and <laughs> decide to come in and talk to us anyway. We appreciate it. No problem. This is Buffalo What's Next uh, on WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, W-O-L-N, Olean, and W-U-B-J, Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. We'll be back with another program tomorrow. Thanks so much for being here today.